Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, please keep Psalms 1 to open. I'm just going to read from Acts chapter 13. Don't turn to it. But here is the Apostle Paul speaking to Jewish people in the synagogue in a place called Pisidian Antioch. And towards the end of his sermon, he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Let's pray. Loving fathers, we begin this series on the book of Psalms. Give us eyes to see your son, that we might sing your praises for Jesus' sake. Amen. So over the next couple of months, we're going to look at this remarkable collection of 150 poems, many, of course, designed to be sung, treasured down the generations, all through the Old Testament times, treasured by the Lord Jesus Christ, who quoted from this book in the Old Testament more than any other part of the Hebrew Bible, and treasured throughout 2,000 years by Christians. These psalms have been at the heart of corporate worship and individual devotion. These are ancient Words, 
Many, of course, written by David himself. But some going a long way further back, one at least ascribed to Moses. So 3,500, 4,500 years ago, we've got a, a, a range of about 900 years, lots of different authors, but all of them many, many years ago. Ancient words, and yet powerfully contemporary. These words are God's words to us. And many have found immeasurable comfort as we've heard God speaking through these words, perhaps especially at times of crisis, turning point in our lives. But not only are they God's word to us, they become our words to God. The whole of life is in these Psalms, the ups and the downs. And we find expression here of the whole range of human emotion. And as we read them, we think, you, you too, you felt like this. And those words become the words we use in prayer to God. Many of us have our favorite psalms, and perhaps you've looked to see whether your favorite psalms are in the collection that we're looking at. Just nine psalms is all we've got time for over the next couple of months. And I've not chosen my favorite psalms, so it won't surprise me if I haven't got yours. The aim is not to just pick on individual psalms. That tends to be how we read the psalms, and if I'm honest, how I've read the psalms, and there's nothing wrong with that. As it were, each of them definitely stands alone. But we're not simply meant to read them in isolated form. They belong to one book. Now, most of the Bible, we read understanding it fits within a book. We'd never think of reading a chapter from one of the epistles of Paul without working out what happened before, what happened afterwards, and the context will help us to understand it. And the Psalms are a book. Although written by a whole variety of different authors over many different years, they've been brought together in a particular correct collection like this at a particular time, and they bear the marks of very careful arrangement. Certainly, these two psalms are designed to be introductory psalms, as I hope I'll explain a little bit later. And then they're arranged in five different books, mirroring the, the five books of the Pentateuch, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And all of them, as you will see on the, the slide, please, all of them conclude with the same words, praise the Lord. That's how book one ends. It's how book two ends, book three, book four, book five. And the whole psalm is heading towards the dramatic conclusion in Psalms 146, 147, 8, 9, 50. All of them begin and end with the words, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Carefully designed. Now we can, thank you, that's enough of the slide. We can overplay this. And sometimes, I'll be honest, you look at a particular psalm and you think, I can't see why that fits there. It doesn't seem to, to, to belong to any grouping. And don't overplay it. But we can underplay it. And I hope very much that as we see the sweep of the Psalter and something, God willing, of the mind of the one who brought it together, that will not take these individual psalms away from us, but will help us to understand them with, with greater power. Because like all the books of the Bible... This was designed to do something in the minds and the hearts of those who first received the collection in this particular form. So although many were written many years before, the last psalm that we can certainly date, certainly dates from the time of the exile. Remember when the, the Babylonians defeated the Judeans and took them away from the land? It's a time of great depression for the nation. 
And very likely the Psalter was brought together in this particular form soon after the return from exile, a long time after the glory days of the people of Israel. The glory days under David and Solomon, who reigned over one united kingdom in peace and prosperity. But the context of this book, as it stands now, is a very, very different mood. Reflected in the words of Psalm 137, words that those of you who remember the songs of the 1970s will recognize well. These words, not original to Boney M. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And the psalm goes on. There our captors asked us for songs. You can imagine them. Come on, sing us a song. Sing one of your songs about your poxy little God. It's the kind of taunting that they were hearing. And they replied, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Well, now they're back home, but the mood is still depressed. No glory days. No king. Oh, there's a temple. But it's nothing like the great temple that Solomon built. Where is God? And yet these psalms are all designed to help us hear the songs of Zion, the songs of the King, and join in the song and be spurred on in a life of praise, even in the midst of the darkness of a world that continues to reject Almighty God. And to give us a sense of the, the context, and I think the goal of the book of Psalms, I'm going to show us a little extract from a film from 1942, a great scene from the film Casablanca. Have a watch. time in the war, the time when North Africa was under the nominal control of Vichy France, but of course Vichy France was basically a puppet regime. The Nazis were in control. And so the locals are cowed. They've stopped singing. And all they can sing here is the songs, as it were, of the oppressors. And then the music strikes up. 
and suddenly there's a stir in their heart and they stand up and they start singing again. That is the goal, I take it, of the book of Psalms. And today we're just looking at the introduction that point us towards some of the great themes that will go through all this collection right to the end, chapters, uh, Psalms 1 to 150. And the goal, remember, is heading in the direction of praise while recognizing the reality that all is not as it should be, all is not as it we want it to be, but all is not as it one day will be. Psalms 1 and 2, deliberately together, although they, they feel very different as Psalms, it seems, by most commentators recognize, these are together designed to be the introduction to the whole of the collection. And they're, they're joined together by verbal brackets, as it were, so-called inclusio, round the, the beginning and end of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The word blessed begins Psalm 1, end of Psalm 2, blessed. These Psalms describe the blessed person the happy one, the one who's living the wise and the best life. When you're surrounded by a world who rejects God, you can wonder whether it would be better just to join in with their songs and keep quiet. That's the blessed, happy, wise way to live. And the Psalms are saying, now there's a better way to be happy and blessed through life. Psalm 1, the blessed way is to delight in God's word. Psalm 2, the blessed way is to submit to God's Son. And that is the message of the whole Psalter. First, delight in God's Word. And notice it starts with a negative. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. Straight away, here we get the backdrop to the whole of the Psalter, the assumption of conflict. The world has turned against his maker, living in opposition to him. And it would be so easy just to go along. So easy to join in the world's songs. Perhaps we notice here a progression. It begins with walking in step with the wicked. Literally, in the counsel of the wicked. Opening the ears and then the hearts to their way of thinking. And that leads in turn to standing in the way the sinners take. In other words, joining with them in their behavior. And that leads, if we carry on down that path, to sitting in the company of mockers, completely at home with them, joining with them in their derision of God and his people. Perhaps we recognize ourselves sometimes beginning to go down that road. I, I can think of one friend of mine, tragically, went all the way down that road. Began by just being tempted by some of the ways in which the world thought. And then began to start living a little bit as a Christian and a little bit with the world and fitting in. And, and then the next stage was joining with the mockers. I remember speaking in favor of Christianity and this friend who I used to pray with just two or three years before, was on the other side laughing at the arguments in a debate with those of us who argued for Christian faith. It's a very tempting path to go down because it seems the wise way. If you join with the mockers, you join with the crowd. Most people affirm that way. Fancy still living for the Lord in a foreign land. It's a stupid thing to do. But the blessed life demands a decisive rejection of the mindset the lifestyle, the ethos of those who resist God's rule. 
By contrast, verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. The word law for us doesn't sound very exciting. Imagine someone meditating on a set of commands. Weird thing to do. But the law for the Hebrew, for the Jewish person, didn't simply mean a set of commands. The law was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And its theme is first and foremost, not about what we must do for God. That's how we understand commandments. But rather about what God has done for us, beginning, of course, with the creation of the world and then the way in which the world turned away from God and then God's amazing promises to bring a people to himself and then God acting to redeem the people of Israel so that they become his people. And only then, once he's done all that for them, does he say, now, as my people, here's how I want you to live. And the law here refers to that totality, not just commandments, but the redemption that precedes the commandments. It's about gospel. The blessed are marked not above all by what they turn away from, but rather positively by what, we might say, who they turn to, to God and his word. One word has described the wise person as the ultimate law nerd, a law obsessive, a law binge watcher. We might say a Bible nerd. A Bible obsessive, a Bible binge reader. But not just reading it so it goes in one head and out the other, but meditating. Notice that word, reflecting on it, giving it time to sink in so that it has an impact on what is thought, yes, and felt, and then done. And that is what's happening in the Psalms. Because you write poems and songs, and then maybe you're waiting for inspiration. And you might take inspiration from a beautiful spring day like we had yesterday. Or from some experience in your life and that inspires you. But the psalmist is not looking first and foremost for inspiration from things out there. The psalmist is taking inspiration from the Bible. From God's word. He's riffing off, if you like, the covenant, the law, what God has done, what God has promised. He's meditating on the Bible in the light of his experience of life and then expressing those thoughts, those feelings in poetry and in song. Five books. Well, there are five books of the law. It seems what the psalmist is saying, if you want to meditate on the law, then read these psalms because that's what it's all about. It is, as Martin Luther puts it, the Bible in miniature. It'll help us to get the theme of the whole scriptures and internalize them as we meditate. And we hope very much that during these next few weeks you'll take those little booklets away or look online and read the Psalms so we can get perhaps back into the habit or renew the habit or start the habit of not only reading the Bible every day, wouldn't it be marvelous to read the Psalms day by day to help us to embrace and meditate on the whole of the Scriptures that corporately they hit our hearts and are shown in our lives. This is the blessed way to live. Verse 3, the one who does that is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, prospers. It's a beautiful picture of stability, planted, firm, secure. 
and vitality nourished by streams of water laden with fruit. As one writer has pointed out, this is a very rare combination, stability and vitality. Some people are very stable, but frankly a little bit dull, always playing safe, half alive. Other people, full of vitality, great fun to be around, charging after every possible adventure, but not very stable, not always reliable. But here is a stability that is not monotonous and a vitality that is not chaotic because it's rooted in the Word of God, built on solid rock with a blazing fire that flows from it, as it were, that stirs the heart. Those who delight in God's Word live the good life. Notice again, whatever they do, prospers. And you think, hang on, that's not true, is it? Whatever they do, prospers. This is not law. It's not saying what is literally true in every possible circumstance. This is poetry. But it's saying even in the midst of trials, and certainly the Psalms make it clear that those who seek to live the good life will suffer. But even in the midst of trials, they'll have the vibrant life of God throbbing in their veins and the hope of the future day when God will reduce and remove all the pain and suffering in the world and put everything right. That's the blessed way. How very different to those who walk in the opposite direction, verse 4, not so the wicked. And they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Sometimes they look so enviable, and we think, oh, wouldn't that be a better way to live my life? They look so powerful, so permanent. But in the end, they will not prosper in their rebellion. Because, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And on that day, when judgment comes, those who oppose God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be seen to be like the chaff left over at the end of the milling process rootless and weightless, blown away with the wind. And so comes the conclusion, verse 6. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. As we pray the Psalms, as we meditate on them, as we internalize their themes... Will God willing to be strengthened to turn from the path of folly and walk in the way of wisdom? This is the blessed way that will enable us to hear a different song and live according to it. The blessed delight in God's word. And Psalm 2, the blessed submit to God's Son. It's very deliberately place together these two psalms. The message of Psalm 1, repeated and underlined in Psalm 2, but from a different perspective and in a different form. In Psalm 2, we've moved from the very individual, very personal, to the cosmic and the universal. And the psalm addresses the whole world. It tells a story, and within it, it contains the story of human history. The story that the Bible tells from beginning to end. The story that makes sense of the way the world is with all its mess. The story that gives hope 
to the fact that one day all that mess will be removed and all will be well. So imagine the psalmist now as a dramatist. And it's as if he's coming onto the stage at the beginning and introducing us to the plot of the book that's going to follow through and introducing us one by one to the different characters who will dominate this drama. And you can see behind the Psalms a drama. Each section begins with a different character. We can imagine the spotlight on them one by one. First, verses 1 to 3, rebellious humanity. And the psalmist comes onto the stage and begins by drawing attention once again to that conflict. It's the backdrop to chapter 1. Now it's explicitly mentioned. And all through the Psalter we'll find enemies keeping on appearing. This conflict is the backdrop to the whole book. Verse 1 and 2, the psalmist. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then, as it were, he goes off the stage and on come representative figures of the world rulers standing in opposition to God and his king. We hear their voice, verse 3, speaking about God and his son, God and his king. Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They've fallen for the oldest lie. The lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden. But to live under God's rule is to be shackled and enslaved. The opposite, of course, is true. To live under God's loving rule is the way of freedom and blessing. But they want none of that. Let's get rid of our chains and our shackles and let live, let's live independently of God. That word why at the beginning of the psalm is not a genuine question looking for an answer. It's an expression of derision. As the psalmist is effectively saying, look at them. What are they thinking? Do they really think they're going to get away with this? Before almighty God, the sovereign Lord... He's the next character that's introduced. Although he doesn't come onto the stage, not yet. It's not yet the time for him to appear in the flesh in the person of his son. That will come later. So you can imagine, as it were, an empty stage at this point, but the sound of laughter from on high. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Verses 4 to 6. Have been introduced to rebellious humanity in one to three, four to six, the sovereign God. He's not intimidated. One word of rebuke, and these rulers of the nations are silenced. Verse five, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. The Psalms are deeply political. As one Old Testament scholar has put it, these are dangerous poems. They laugh at the pretensions of those to set themselves up in opposition to God. Just imagine reading these psalms in North Korea today. Or in any nation that rejects God. Because these psalms are laughing at these rulers and saying, there's only one ultimate ruler, that's the sovereign God. And the wise person recognizes that and resists them. So many contemporary songs and poems are self-obsessed. But these psalms are God-obsessed. He's the chief 
character that the psalmist looks to and reflects on. He's introduced as the sovereign God in complete control, the gracious God of amazing love, the faithful God, the covenant promise-keeping God. And now we hear his voice from heaven. Verse 6. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Here's his response to the voice of the nations resisting his authority. We could expect God to be silent. After human beings, it began in the Garden of Eden. It's gone on ever since. Human beings reject God and his authority over the world. Why wouldn't God just turn away from us? But God in his amazing love comes close and promises. He promises to call a people to himself. And that one day he's going to put everything right and he's going to restore the world to the way it should be. And as you go through the Old Testament, more and more these promises are focused in on the king who will come. The Christ, the Messiah. God said to David in the remarkable promise of 2 Samuel 7, will be my son. Great David's greater son and the great son of Almighty God himself. In verses 7 to 9, he's introduced. The theme now, the divine king. And we hear the son's testimony. Verse 7, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. And the first readers of the Psalms are looking forward to that moment. Remember, they're living in a land, very likely a restored land. They're back in Judah, but they're a puppet nation under the great rulers, first of the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. There's no king in the land. Not really, nothing like David and Solomon. No king of the line of David. But they're looking forward to the day when God will enthrone his king. And so the psalmist is saying, right at the beginning of this whole introduction, listen, read these psalms messianically, Christologically. Look for the Christ in them. Look for the king. That's not something we impose on the Psalms because we're Christian and we try and make them Christian. Right from the beginning, the psalmist is saying, this is about the king. These are the king's songs that we're introduced to, literally many of them. The king as he suffers because he's despised and rejected of men. He's not yet been enthroned and yet the king who trusts that one day, even if he dies, God will raise him from the dead and vindicate him and his kingdom will come. And as we hear the king's songs, we're invited to join, to sing in the king's choir, stir our hearts, surrounded by those who reject him, to keep living for him and, yes, praising him. That's one thing to do way back then. It must have been very hard because it's all faith. They've seen nothing. But we live after the days in which those words have actually been said. Said from a voice from heaven at the moment of Christ's baptism. This is my son. As God the Father quotes Psalm 2. This is the moment. This is the one. Or at his transfiguration on the mountain, this is my son whom I love. 
listen to him. And we also live not just after the baptism of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus supremely. We live after the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul preaching in Parsidian Antioch says, look, the resurrection of Jesus is the great declaration of the world that Jesus is this divine king, this son of the father who now reigns in heaven. And if that's already been fulfilled, it's only a matter of time before verses 8 and 9 will be fulfilled. And here again, the son is saying, what the father has said to me, said to him, verse 8, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You, the king, will break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. That's the future. Well, while we wait, it's often going to be hard, and we'll see next week, there's a very, very different mood. Psalm 2, speaking of this divine king who reigns, and one day all the nations will bow before him, and yet what does this king, King David, say in Psalm 3? Lord, how many are my foes? And Sometimes it doesn't look as if the king is reigning. But one day he will come, and he'll bring justice and judgment Vindicate all those who trusted in him and who sing his song. And so at the end, verses 10 to 12, the psalmist returns to the stage. And once again, he's addressing the rulers of the nations and through them, all the kingdoms of the earth, all the people on earth. Therefore, you kings, imagine him standing in the Kremlin, in the White House, in the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace. This is no private religion, Christianity, just to be stuck into the corners of our lives personally. This is public, political, life-changing, universal truth. Therefore, you kings, and yes, you individuals throughout the world, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule. With trembling, as Pete told us earlier, both trembling, recognizing he's the almighty king and I'm not the Lord. I bow down before him and yet celebrate because he's the king in whose service is perfect freedom. Kiss his son. Some will kiss hands. King Charles, no doubt, already and perhaps at his coronation. To kiss the hand is to do obeisance, recognize his rule. Kiss his son. Or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. There's a warning to those who continue to resist God, his son, the Lord Jesus. But then the glorious finale, blessed are all who take refuge in him like those under Nazi occupation. You can feel cowed. And the song in your heart might have been removed, it seems, altogether. But can you hear the people sing? As we hear the songs of the king, God willing, more and more, we'll feel a stirring in our hearts and then a spring in our steps and then a song in our lips as we continue to serve him. 
through the ups and the many downs of life. And even in the midst of those downs, praise him because we know the king reigns. And one day he'll return and all will be well. Let's pray. Loving Father, it's our prayer that as we study these psalms, you wouldn't just fill our heads with knowledge but you'd fill our hearts with a song and with joy. Often in suffering, we might live for him, the king who is enthroned. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.